I don't think there is a greater privilege than to open and share God's work with God's people. Of course, it's a privilege to take it to those who are not God's people and uh, have them also evaluate their relationship with the call of Christ upon their life and service because Christ has made a call upon everyone's life and service. There is no question about that. And I hope you're going to be here for the rest of these meetings. You know, it's a very difficult thing for me in weeks in advance to give topics because we're in such a rapidly changing time that uh, something else comes that takes on an urgency that perhaps wasn't an urgency back when I gave the topic. So you'll forgive me for changing up a little the order of the topics. And not only the order, but I want to bring in a couple of topics here that I would not have presented. And this afternoon and this evening, especially this evening, I want to go through what really happened in that trial and what it means over, you might say, well, that won't affect us here in the United, in the United Kingdom because, um, you know, we're a long way away and we're not part of the United States. We don't come under the laws of the United States. But I want to tell you, one of the legal counsel for the General Conference wrote a very chilling letter on that very important topic. And I want to share you the essence of that letter this evening. I want us also to look at what is meant by the issues that confronted us when we had our meeting with the General Conference brethren. You know, it's always been my desire to be in unity with the leadership of this church. I don't think there's anything sweeter than unity. You remember what... Um, David said how good it is for brethren to be in unity. Well, we know that. And it's hard to be in disunity, but there is only one basis for unity, as we said last night. And that is perfection, which means truth and righteousness. The only basis... And as I said last night, those of us that were here were in unity if we were together in truth and righteousness. I hope that the bigger group here today will be in unity one with the other, but it has to be in truth and righteousness. Well, before I commence, there are a couple of things that I want to just say. The, um, I mentioned last night, this is the first time I've been here since, since the Humphreys' death. Not only does the family miss her, but those of us that uh, have been the recipients of her loving kindness. I remember the last time I was here, March of last year, that she had a terrible problem with pain. She couldn't go to sleep. Do you remember that situation? We had a special anointing, and the Lord gave her rest. But in his mercy and love, he has laid her to rest, awaiting the soon return of Jesus Christ. And I pray that all of us will be ready for that great day, 
Whether we're young or old, we need to be ready every moment of every day. Nothing else matters. And as we go through this series this weekend, I want us to understand the solemnity of the times in which we live. It was pointed out that our first meeting here at Gaisley was in 1986. Richard, it seems a lot longer ago than that. It really does because so much has happened in between. We had no idea that these, mo these meetings would continue. That was a one-off event, at least that's what we thought. And some 60-some people gathered, not here, but very close quarters over in the rectory. But we had a wonderful fellowship. In the first part of the meetings, just about everyone there was white. But a group of West Indians came later from London and from Birmingham. And we saw the melding together. You know, some people feel that um, if you're one race, you've got to worship separately from another race. Well, I can understand people having to worship separately if they can't understand the other's languages. That's understandable because they've got to hear the word in their own language. But I've found that the truth is a wonderful uniter. I often think of um, our college there at Heartland. You know, every shade of the rainbow is there. Jesse Jackson talks about the rainbow coalition. Well, we sure have it there at Heartland. But what unites us is this truth and righteousness. And that's what unites the people that come to Gaisley. The truth and the righteousness. Because that alone will keep people from the carnal pettiness that there is in this world today. Don't think we're going to get rid of racism or any other of the separating aspects of society except those who will be perfect in the power of Jesus Christ. It's going to go on. Let's, we've just got to face that reality. We're in a wicked world. It won't, you know, we can make all sorts of laws, but you can't change the heart by law. The heart is changed by Jesus. The only way it's changed. I also... Um, by the way, two weeks from now is the Hartman College graduation. And I want you to keep that in mind in your prayers as another annual generation of young people go fully out into the field. It's much more urgent today. At the moment, we only have two students from Britain. We've had more in times past. It's about time to replenish the British supply. Um, we have Adam Ramden, who soon will be going out on his internship. That's the final year of field work. 
to put the finishing touches to the preparation that is made. And Adam has a great desire to come back here and evangelize in Great Britain. I hope you'll all encourage him to do that. Britain needs that kind of evangelism to add to all these other wonderful things that are taking place. You know, 1986, none of these things that have been talked about here, the work of Brother and Sister Anderson, the work of Jonathan, the work of a whole host of other, other people, wasn't being done um, 14 years ago. So the Lord ha is raising up people here. And Marika Williams is there from Wales. And she's coming to her internship situation. So you can see we need to replenish the British representation. And I am asking immediately after this meeting for all the young people that might have any interest in considering coming to Heartland to meet with me for a few minutes just before they have lunch. You think more clearly before lunch than afterwards. And uh, so if you could come just forward after the meeting, we'll spend 10 minutes or so together because I'm very anxious to take up people from all over the world. I've been absolutely amazed that the last two major meetings that I have taken, the amount of unprecedented interest in students coming to Heartland at the Natomas Church in Sacramento, 34 young people asked for applications. Now they won't all be able to come this year. Maybe some of them will never come. I've never had more than 10 before, any time in the 17 years history. But last week, another 15 asked for applications down at Colton in Southern California. Something is happening. And uh, I believe that uh, this is a sign that uh, we are coming to the end of time and young people are beginning to see, that is dedicated young people, that they need to be part of the fulfillment of that statement that with such an army of workers as our youth rightly trained might furnish, how soon the message of a crucified, risen and soon coming saviour will be carried to the whole world. As Brother Anderson said, we do not want to see generation after generation rising. Do we want to pass away? The next generation come, they pass away, and another and another and another until we forget what the mission of this church is. If we leave it much longer, there won't be much of this mission left because Satan has ravaged this church. We talk about 11 million people approximately in the Seventh-day Adventist church. I wonder really how many would be in church this Sabbath day. Five million? Maybe? And how many of those are filled with the Holy Spirit? How many of those are totally committed to the Lord? How many even know what the Seventh-day Adventist message is? But God will seek out his own, and if you will be part of his own, God will bless. Well, the topic this morning that I want to share with you is the topic, the joy of persecution. We better understand that, brethren and sisters. 
God has called us to joy in persecution. Come with me to a very familiar text, 2 Timothy 3 verse 12, one that I imagine that each one of us could quote here, but let us put our eyes upon this text. I was looking at this several weeks ago, and um, again, I wanted to understand it a little more fully when it said in verse 12, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall what? suffer persecution and the, the real problem is have we or are we suffering persecution why not the connection is there isn't it as brother Lang has said only those who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution now I hear people talking about how they're being persecuted. They're being disfellowshipped from this church or they're being put out of office or they're ostracized by this one or that one or the pastor is doing this, that and the other thing to them. I tell you, brethren and sisters, that's not persecution, as we'll see in a moment. Oh, it's a test. It's a trial that God is allowing. And God is allowing us at this time to be tested and tried that we might be ready when the great persecution comes. Are we passing the test, dear brethren and sisters? Every test. I can tell you something. If you fail a test, God's going to bring you back around again and again. I remember one man coming to me. He said, I can't understand it. The Lord is always testing me on this, pro this issue. I said, brother, you mustn't have passed the test. Let's think about it. How can God take us to the next level if we're failing the test? And many of us fail the test over and over and over again. Brothers and sisters, if we continue to fail the test, we'll never stand in the day of test and the real day of test and trial, the persecution that is coming upon us. The first threatened to our liberty or to our food supply or maybe to any other issue that is adverse to our natural inclinations will bring capitulation. If we complain, anyone complain this week? about anything, a little thing. If we complain, it's because we don't have faith. We don't really believe Romans 8, 28, all, th and all things what? Work together for good to them, yes, that love the Lord, to them that are called according to his purpose. Listen. No matter how testing a situation is, if we fail that test, God's going to bring us back. He loves us too much to leave us as a failure. But you know, if we continue to reject the opportunities that God has given to us, we'll never pass a test. Come over to Matthew chapter 5 in the Beatitudes. You know there's wonderful statements 
for us all to understand here in terms of persecution. We understand what we should do as well as what will be our response. Verse 10 of Matthew 5, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Not just persecuted. We can be persecuted for sin. We deserve that perhaps. But this is for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Isn't that a wonderful promise? If you're persecuted for righteousness' sake, what a wonderful promise that is. If you come to verse 11, Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Ever been accused falsely? Have you had your motives impugned? Oh yes, most of us have. But that's a blessing. It's not easy to see the blessing. But it says rejoice. How do we be happy? Rejoice and be what? Exceeding glad for so persecuted they the prophets that were before you. Brethren and sisters, persecution is a time of rejoicing. Count ourselves so privileged to share with the persecution that Jesus and the prophets before us have shared. What should we do with our persecutors? Well, verse 44 gives us the answer, doesn't it? But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. I don't think we do enough praying for those that have um, opposed us, those that have thrown us out of the church or thrown us out of office or the pastor that's on our case. We're not praying enough for them. But the command of Jesus is to pray for them. Dear brethren and sisters, we're to love them. Actually love them. You know, naturally, that doesn't come to the human heart. But you also know that Jesus loved his enemies and he prayed for them. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Stephen said, lay not this sin to their charge. That's the example, or they're the examples that each one of us must accept, dear brethren and sisters. Oh, it's important for us to remember those issues. In John chapter 15, here's Jesus speaking again. John 15 and verse 20. Oh, this is something for us to remember, to keep in mind. John 15, 20 says, Remember the word that I said unto you. The servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my sayings, they will keep yours also. Listen, he's not meaning they kept it in their heart to fulfill them. They listened to what Jesus said and then they used it against him in persecution. They're going to do the same to you. They're going to say words that you've said in love and in innocence and they're going to come back as accusations when you stand on that trial. And by the way, they're going to come from your brethren. That's obvious. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 
Oh, the, the Bible speaks much of persecution. And I'm just looking at one or two of the texts that we can find here. Chapter 4, and I'm reading from verse 5. Therefore judge nothing before... I'm sorry, I got 1 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 5. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power might be of God and not of us. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Is that how we are here? Do we still have that buoyant optimism, that hope, that joy that God has called us to have? Verse 10. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus Christ, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our bodies. What is real persecution? Well, Paul gives us an idea of what happened to him, and this is a partial list. This is before the end of his life in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Now, some of these events we can find very plainly in the book of Acts, but not all of them. So the book of Acts did not reveal all the persecutions that Paul had. Notice it here in verse 23 of 2 Corinthians 11. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more in labors, labors more abundant, in stripes more frequent, uh, sorry, above measure, in prison more frequent, in deaths oft. He means that he was almost at the point of death. Of the Jews, five times received I forty stripes, say one. See if you can find five times in the book of Acts where the Jews were responsible for forty stripes, save one. Thrice was I beaten with rods, once was I stoned, thrice I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day I have been in the deep, in journeyings often in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils by mine own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren. That's one for us to keep in mind. In weariness and painfulness, in watching often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, beside those things that are without, that which cometh upon me daily. The care of all the churches. What a responsibility. In all these persecutions, his mind was still on the care of those precious believers, most of whom he had led to Jesus Christ through his, his preaching. Verse 29, Who is weak, and I am not weak? Who is offended, and I burn not? That means burn with anger or hatred or resentment or bitterness. Burn with passion. He uses that term burn a number of times in relationship to passions in his epistles. He talks about it in sexual passions. He talks about burning, burning with lust. But he's referring here to his emotions. He does not burn 
Verse 30, If I must need glory, I will glory in the things which concerning, concern my infirmities. Listen, that's persecution. I haven't been whipped or beaten for my faith. I haven't been shipwrecked. I haven't been stoned and you go through all these other events here. That's persecution, brethren and sisters. And it was really a miracle that his life was spared through all of those situations, dreadful though they would be. But you know, as I was, if you come back to Second Timothy, where we start at verse 3, verse 12, when I was looking at this text a few weeks ago, I said, now, what led Paul to make this statement? All that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. So I started to read before. You know how you get context when you start to read around the text that has focused your attention. And I didn't need to go more than verse 11. And that opened up a great vista of what it means to be persecuted for righteousness' sake. Verse 11, persecutions, afflictions, which come unto, came unto me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, but out of them all the Lord delivered me. You know, when I read it, I said, now what were the persecutions in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra? And you know, I couldn't remember them. I couldn't remember what happened to Paul. This is not Antioch in Syria. This is the other Antioch in what we'd say the middle of Turkey today, more or less towards the center of modern-day Turkey, Antioch in Pisidia. Now, what happened to Paul there? What happened to Paul in Iconium? What was the persecution in Lystra? So, of course... I did what anyone would want to do, and that was go back and read the story. I tell you, I learned so much from that story. And so I want to share it with you this morning. The events are very clearly defined in the book of Acts. If you'll come with me to the 13th chapter of Acts. Now, as I said... Um, Antioch in Pisidia is more or less in the center of modern-day Turkey. Of course, there were no Turks there then. They were Greeks mainly and people from other nations. The Turks were to come in later. But uh, at the start of this verse, now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers as Barnabas and Simeon and so on, names a whole list of them. And so they started to preach in Antioch. Verse 14, But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. You'll notice that Paul almost inevitably first started to work with the Jews, those who had a basis or foundation to understand the truth. That was his approach. I don't know, sometimes we think that we shouldn't be, we don't have to. In fact, I've heard people say the Adventist church has had its chance. Well, it's not for me to say that. I mean, this was after the Jewish nation was no longer God's chosen nation. 
There's a vast work to be done for the churches here in Great Britain. That doesn't mean we worship and accept the worship there. But we've got to work for these people. You might say they know the truth. Most of them don't know the truth. They've never heard the truth. They've been brought in as half-baked Adventists, or many of them have. I was talking to a conference secretary a couple of months ago very faithful secretary of a conference you know there's still a few left of those kind of people don't think they're all gone and he told me the devastation he had last year he had called in all the baptisms it might have been early this year all the baptisms from last year in that conference for a weekend um, kind of revival and uh, <laughs> information and answering questions you know I thought it was a wonderful idea to call in those those people of course not all of them came probably some of them were already back out in the world but a hundred plus people came in doesn't sound like a lot in a moderate sized conference no, it wasn't a big conference but it wasn't a small one either But he said, I got onto the spirit of prophecy. Only three had any significant knowledge of the role of the spirit of prophecy in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. He said, you can understand what I said to the workers at the next workers' meetings. What were the pastors doing? What were the evangelists doing? Only three out of, I don't know how much over a hundred, but a hundred something people he felt had any suitable knowledge of the role some had heard about it some didn't even know about the spirit of prophecy and they were baptized into the seventh day Adventist faith without a knowledge of the end time prophet and he named a couple of others of our pillar doctrine the sanctuary message there was a weakness and he realized how poorly pre prepared these so-called baptisms. Listen, brethren and sisters, you know where the concentration is today in our church? It's on baptisms, not on souls. Now, there's a grave difference. The two should represent the same thing. Baptisms should be men and women that have truly surrendered everything to the Lord in the knowledge of the Lord and his truth. Well, he came to um, the synagogue and he sat down. And you remember being strangers there, but obviously the impact was great of them and they were asked to give a message. And Paul stood up and gave a message. And he didn't go to some peripheral message. What message did Paul preach? He talked to them. He told them about Jesus Christ. Do you think that was a popular message to the Jews at that time? Let's look at verse 42. We're jumping, but we've got to do that to get the implications. And when the Jews were gone out of the synagogue, the Gentiles besought that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath day. Can you imagine the Gentiles there coming? We want to hear these words too. Wouldn't it be wonderful after we preach here today? 
there was a great crowd of hundreds of people from Gaisley out here coming on this lawn and saying, please, next week will you preach this to us too? Wouldn't that be exciting? I think under the latter rain, that's, those kind of things are going to happen. Going to happen. You imagine how Paul and Barnabas' heart responded to all of this. Well, let's go on. The story isn't all good like that. Verse 44. And the next Sabbath day came almost the whole city together to hear the word of God. Now, I don't know how many people lived in Antioch in Pisidia. But even if it was only a few thousand, wouldn't this be a wonderful experience? Almost all the city came. It was the event of the day to come and hear Paul preach. I tell you, you'd be empowered, wouldn't you? How would anyone that loves to preach this word not have that, love to have that experience? But notice verse 45. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with what? Not rejoicing. Look at these pagans, these Gentiles, these Greeks that have come here to hear this message and be thrilled by it. Their carnal emotions came through. They were filled with envy and spake against those things which were spoken by Paul, contradicting and blaspheming. Then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you. But seeing ye put it from you, and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. That's a rather strong word, isn't it? You're unworthy of eternal life. Why? Because they'd rejected the gospel that had been presented to them of Jesus Christ. All right, let's fall down to verse 48. I'd lo love you to read it all here. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. But in verse 50, the Jews were at it. Now I want you to see, they were the, of the household of Israel. These are the people that's supposed to have known and have accepted the words of God. But in verse 50 it says, But the Jews stirred up the devout and honorable women and the chief men of the city and raised persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them out of their coasts. So here's what happened. It wasn't the Gentiles that caused the problem. It was the Jews. Shocking. And they're able to convince some of the leaders of the cities, some of the Gentiles, people that perhaps had some interest, but they're able to convince them to persecute Paul and Barnabas. So notice what they did, verse 51, but they shook off the dust of their feet against them and came unto Iconium. But notice verse 52, and the disciples were filled with what? Joy with the Holy Ghost. You see, persecution is not something to be unhappy about. Do you remember when Paul and Silas were in the prison in Philippi? Remember that? Now, that was something to complain about. Falsely accused, falsely imprisoned after a terrible beating. And what are they doing in prison? 
They're not complaining of their terrible lot. They're singing. And by that, and because of that, the jailer and his wife and family were eventually brought into the fellowship of Jesus Christ. I don't know whether any of the other prisoners were. Maybe they were. They must have seen these men as entirely different from the others. And so here they're expelled, cast out of the city because of the activities of the Jews. Well, what happened in Iconium? Now, if you look at your maps in the back of the Bible, you see that Iconium might be as much as 80 miles or something like that away, southeast of Antioch. Um, you'll have to get a, a map with, with Turkey on it. You'll see it, yes, on the map you've got there. They'll be there, almost certainly. Now, I want you to notice things get worse in Iconium. In fact, they get increasingly worse. And it came to pass, verse 1 of chapter 14, in Iconium, that they went both together where? Into the synagogue of the Jews, and so spake that a great multitude, both of the Jews and also of the Greeks, believed. Verse 2. But the unbelieving Jews. They're always the problem. Doesn't say the unbelieving Greeks. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and made their minds evil affected against the brethren. Verse 4. But the multitude of the city was divided and part held with the Jews and part with the apostles. Now who do you think was blamed for that division? Paul and Barnabas. But who had caused the division? The unbelieving Jews, not the Jews that accepted the message. They accepted it gladly. Whenever you present the truth, even to God's people, some are going to believe. And others are going to reject. And watch those who reject. History is repeating itself in this, the beginning of what is called the new millennium. Verse 5. And when there was an assault made both of the Gentiles and also of the Jews with their rulers to use them despitefully and to do something else. And they had to escape before they were stoned. <laughs> They actually gathered stones to stone them. But obviously word came to Paul and Barnabas and they fled. Now that would be enough to give up, wouldn't it? What are you going to do when persecution comes to you, dear brethren and sisters? Are you going to carry on or say, well, I've tried my best, no matter where I go, I'm going to be persecuted, I'll just lay low, or will you continue to glory in the persecution and go forward? And they go now down to Lystra, where things get even worse. Now, Lystra is not as far away from Iconium by any means as Iconium was from Antioch. But listen to 
the story. Verse 6. And it came to pass in Iconium that they went both together into the synagogue of the Jews. You'd think they'd say, well, listen, this time we've learned our lesson. We won't bother to go to the Jews. But they needed to hear too. Paul and Barnabas did not shrink from their God-given responsibilities just because there was persecution. They knew there were Jews that needed to hear that message and there were Jews that would accept that message even though they knew there'd be Jews that would reject it and would become part of persecution to them. Verse, uh, and also the Jews with the rulers. I'm sorry, verse 5. And when... I'm sorry, missing the, the verse. Verse... Um, Seven. And there they preached the gospel. A simple statement. You know that meant they preached about Jesus. You can't preach the gospel unless you preach Jesus. Because Christ is the center of the gospel. They preached the gospel. But then another problem arose. Something that they could not have foretold. There was this man that was crippled from birth. And in compassion, Paul, or at least God through Paul, healed that cripple. And suddenly the pagans decided that Paul and Barnabas were what? Gods. And you remember one was called Mercury and one was called Jupiter. Who was called Mercury? Paul was called Mercury. Apparently he was supposed to be the great speaker. And you remember that Paul rent his clothes and they went running through the city saying, we're just like you are. We're just ordinary people. We're not gods. That was terrible distress to the apostles. They wanted to make the story very, very plain. Now come to verse 19. And there came thither certain Jews from where? That was the first of the three cities. That was a probably a hundred mile journey at least. These Jews somehow got word of where Paul and Barnabas and they brought their nefarious plan all the way down to Lystra. And they came for one purpose, and that was to oppose the ministry of Paul and Barnabas. Oh, what treachery! Now, we're at the end of time, brethren and sisters. Who's going to speak evil of us? Who's going to stir up the secular authorities? We don't have to guess the same thing is going to happen to you and me if we're faithful. If we're continuing to spread the gospel. Who's going to come after us? Who's going to be the ones that alert in false loyalty or pseudo-loyalty to the authorities? Look, there are these people. They're not true Seventh-day Adventists. They're not following what the General Conference dictates. We don't accept them. They've been disfellowshipped. It's going to happen. 
It's happening. And it's going to get vastly worse. Now, there are going to be many Adventists that are joyfully going to accept the fuller message that they hadn't heard before. Verse 20. How be it? Well, perhaps I should come... No, finish verse 19. Certain Jews from Antioch and Iconium who persuaded the people and having done something. What did they do? Oh, we get to the real persecution, don't we? Having stoned Paul. That's what happened in Lystra. The forces of the wicked Jews from Antioch joined with the forces of the wicked Jews from Iconium. They travelled down there in haste, maybe on donkeys or asses or horses or something. And this time Paul and Barnabas didn't escape. Certain Jews from Antioch and Iconium who persuaded the people and having done something, what did they do? Oh, we get to the real persecution, don't we? Having stoned Paul. That's what happened in Lystra. The forces of the wicked Jews from Antioch joined with the forces of the wicked Jews from Iconium. They travelled down there in haste, maybe on donkeys or asses or horses or something. And this time Paul and Barnabas didn't escape. And Paul was stoned. And it says here, verse 19, drew him out of the city, supposing he had been dead. Praise God he wasn't dead. He must have been unconscious. And verse 20 says, Howbeit, as the disciples stood round about him, he rose up and came into the city and this is amazing. The next day, you imagine if you'd have been stoned into unconsciousness. How physically fit were you to move, to go anywhere else? No doubt God worked a miracle. And some of us will need those miracles at the end of time. Notice it. And the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derby. Well, that's another 30 miles or so away from Lystra. Now, wouldn't you say, well, look, I'm going to take a few months to recover. Not if you've got the power of the Holy Spirit in your heart. You're not going to do that. Nothing's going to stop you. You cannot but speak the things that you've seen and heard. Oh, what a thrilling example this is to each one of us here today. And you'll notice in verse 21 or 22 and when uh, 21 and 22 and when they had preached the gospel to that city and had taught many they returned again notice it brethren and sisters where did they go back to oh no come on you wouldn't do that you may go on to another city but the three places where they had been persecuted. 
they're going to go back to them again. They know the Jews are waiting for them in each of these places. And they know the Jews are going to stir up the people. But it says, And when they had preached the gospel to that city and had taught many, they returned again to Lystra and to Iconium and Antioch. Why? Why did they go back? Were they masochists? No. Verse 22 tells us, doesn't it? Confirming the souls of the disciples. Listen, you imagine what courage and what an example it meant to those who had accepted the, the truth in Lystra, Iconium and Antioch. That these apostles that had been so beleaguered by the persecution they had, they came right back to confirm these souls. Their, so, their hearts were for their converts. They were more concerned about the salvation of their fellow men than their own physical safety and security. Oh, that's courage. That's fortitude. That's faith and trust and strength in the Lord. Brethren and sisters, you have to love the Lord with all your heart and soul and you have to love brethren and sisters that way if you're going to do this. If this is going to be your lot, if you're going to move forward with the blood-stained banner of Prince Emmanuel. This is the way you're going to be. Don't tell me that uh, somehow you'll suddenly get an injection of courage. Doesn't happen that way. We better show a lot of courage now. And you notice the verse, verse 22 ends, and that we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. And when they had ordained them elders in every church and had prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. And then you'll notice they made a journey down to the coast and then they caught a ship that took them to Antioch, not Antioch in Pisidia, but now Antioch in Syria on the coast, the east coast of the Mediterranean. Brethren and sisters, when I rehearsed this, I said, that's the courage that I need. That's the single-minded purpose that I need. Nothing will stop you. There is no fear of persecution. There's no fear of torture. There's no fear of imprisonment. There's no fear of death. That's in God's hand. No one can do anything to you unless God allows it. These men showed what it will mean to live godly in Christ Jesus at the end of time. Now, if we're honest, many of us will have to admit we're not witnessing now. When there's no stones raised up against us. When there's no furore that comes from the civic leaders. But God is calling us to have that love for souls. That burden for souls. 
Are we going to stop the first time we get a little piece of persecution? Are we going to forget those that we've brought to the Lord when we see ourselves in, in jeopardy? This gospel is too important. This message is too great. As we've pointed out many times and was pointed out this morning, there's no other church to take this message. And only the faithful in this church are going to take the message. The everlasting gospel, the three angels' messages, have been especially given to this church to take the world. They are the final messages, of course, strengthened by the fourth angel's message of Revelation 18. There's no other gospel that will go to every nation, kindred, tongue and people. But this gospel, but I want to tell you, it will go under persecution. That doesn't mean all will die. God's going to save many at this time. Or there'd be no 144,000. But I want to tell you, everyone that will be part of the 144,000 will have done just what these apostles did. They will have hastened to give the message. I heard Brother Anderson talk about 10,000 cards. I mean, that's a drop in the bucket. Just a drop in the bucket. Even if only one that received that card eventually came part of God's kingdom, it would be worth it, wouldn't it? And who knows that there might be many. Come back to our opening text in 2 Timothy, chapter 3. There are two verses following, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. It says, But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. <coughs> That's why they persecute. Remember that when it comes to the end of time, it's going to be those of our former brethren that are going to be the real accusers. Oh yes, I'll go to the, the state. Always they go to the state. That's inevitable. The trial in Florida, the brethren went to the state. <coughs> That's an example of what's going to happen far more commonly in the future. They disobeyed the clearest, plainest statements of inspiration to deprive faithful Seventh-day Adventists of their liberty. Then it says, But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. There's a continuing. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. They overcame by the blood of the Lamb 
and by what else? If you stop your word testimony, what's going to happen? You're not going to overcome. And they loved not their life unto the death. Whosoever shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. What a wonderful promise. Endure, brethren and sisters. We don't know how often we'll be here together like this. But listen, this is the time. This is a testing time. If you're not passing the test now, you'll never pass these tests. Never. Don't think that suddenly you'll get a great infusion of moral and spiritual strength when the test comes. You're developing it now, brethren and sisters, or you're not. I'm not talking to the people out there. I'm not even talking to the run-of-the-mill Seventh-day Adventists. I'm talking to people that profess to be part of the faithful Seventh-day Adventists that are following the Bible and the spirit of prophecy. People that have claimed they have no creed but the Bible. But many are going to be lost who make those claims unless they're in the fellowship of Jesus. Every day we've got to pray for this. I know how often I've repeated, but I don't think I can over-repeat it, that every morning our life has to be wholly submitted to Jesus. If you're not taking the time every morning, you're going to be some way or somehow diminished in your loyalty to Christ and ministry for him. You've got to pray for that courage. You've got to pray for that strength. You've got to pray for that fortitude. You've got to pray for that faith. You've got to pray for that trust. We can't depend upon those things in our own experience. We've got to pray for it. Or we'll miss out on eternal life. Dear brethren and sisters, this is the blessing that God wants for each one of us. Jesus wants us to be saved. But he also wants us to be his agents to take the message to the world. Those that were here last night will understand how this message articulates with last night's message. But if you hold your peace, in this time of crisis, we cannot hold our peace. We must speak in the difficult times as well as the easy times. And God's going to see us through. He will never leave us nor forsake us. He will allow no one to take us out of his hand. They're the promises. He's going to be with us in our times of darkest despair as in the times of our sunniest prosperity. Don't lean upon yourself or anyone else, but trust wholly in Jesus. Let us kneel together in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank thee that you have made it so plain to us how we can honor thee, 
how we can serve thee. Oh Lord, we think of what Jesus did for us. Not one of us is worthy of salvation, but we claim the promises that come through the shed and the ministered blood of Jesus. Oh Lord, may we be as faithful to thee as thou hast been to us. May we truly be faithful unto death. May we be willing to stand no matter what the circumstances or what the difficulties. And may we proclaim this glorious gospel so that every human being on the face of this planet will have an authentic opportunity to surrender his life to Jesus and be ready for the eternal kingdom. We pray in the all-sufficient saving name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Amen.